Due to the graphic nature of these events, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On March 13, 1995, Alexander McQueen's runway show was the hottest ticket in London. The event, situated on the sprawling east lawn of the Natural History Museum, was completely sold out. It was a huge night for the rising fashion star. He was only 26 years old. The pressure was on. Backstage, McQueen made the final adjustments on several beautiful lace dresses. Suddenly, he grabbed a pair of shears and slashed them. He instructed an intern to do the same with a knife. McQueen's mother screamed and cried, no, don't spoil them. But McQueen wasn't worried about ruining the garments. This was all part of his vision. On the runway, battered and bruised models donned the ripped dresses, exposing their breasts and underwear. The show and the clothing collection were titled The Highland Rape. Critics responded to the show with rage. They called out McQueen as a misogynist for glamorizing sexual assault and violence. But McQueen insisted the public misinterpreted his intent and the historical context behind the clothes. He was making a point. This was a common occurrence throughout his life, career, and even his death. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. This season, we're digging into fashion, from its troubled origins all the way through the never-ending churn of fast fashion. Last week, we looked behind the scenes of fashion TV shows, like the now-defunct Victoria's Secret fashion show. Today, we're diving into the life of Alexander McQueen, one of modern fashion's most iconic designers. His life was rife with darkness, right up until it came to a tragic end. McQueen was a beloved fashion icon in the 1990s and 2000s. Celebrities such as Lady Gaga, Naomi Campbell, and Rihanna have all walked Hollywood red carpets in his glamorous gowns. But behind his masterful designs was a misunderstood genius who battled complex trauma, addiction, anxiety, and depression. Coming up, we'll examine the darkness of Alexander McQueen's early life. Throughout the 90s and the 2000s, the world knew Alexander McQueen as the hooligan of English fashion. He even earned the nickname L'Enfant Terrible, a French expression for an unorthodox, successful rookie. And that was the essence of the Scottish fashion icon. McQueen was a highly skilled avant-garde designer who relished in breaking all the rules. He thought of his clothing as art, and he let his pieces ooze drama on the runway. But while his artistry was publicly on display, 
McQueen quietly struggled with mental illness, which affected him and his family early on. Born Lee Alexander McQueen on March 17, 1969, he was the youngest of six children. As his mother Joyce gave birth, his father Ronald had a breakdown. He was checked into a mental hospital in East London. The event had two pervasive effects on McQueen. He developed a strong bond with his mother, and he became fascinated with mental asylums. That interest later inspired some of his designs. His father recovered two years later and taught his six children to work hard. He expected them to take on steady jobs, even as teenagers. And despite the emphasis on practical work, McQueen kept an active imagination. He expressed himself through clothes early on. In 1972, when he was three years old, McQueen drew a familiar Disney image on his sister's bedroom wall. Cinderella, but with a huge, embellished gown. As McQueen grew older, his interest in fashion only increased. He put together his older sister's outfits for them and grew critical of the clothes his mother Joyce bought for him. Instead of being hurt, though, Joyce encouraged McQueen's interest in fashion. The McQueen family went as far as entering him into a boy's beauty pageant at six years old, one which he handily won. And while McQueen was crowned the Prince of Pontins, he also nursed a crush on the second-place finisher. It was the moment McQueen realized he was gay. He kept it a secret from his family at first because his father was homophobic. McQueen once famously said, I went straight from my mother's womb onto the gay parade. But his road to self-acceptance wasn't as smooth as it seemed. At nine years old, he was allegedly sexually abused by his sister Janet's husband, Terence Hullier. At the time, Janet had no idea it was happening, but her husband physically abused her, too. On two occasions, Hullier's beatings caused Janet to miscarry. During another incident, McQueen saw Hullier try to choke Janet. But karma caught up to him. Years later, Hullier died of a sudden heart attack while driving. However, the effects of the abuse stayed with McQueen for the rest of his life. He felt hurt, angry, and robbed of his innocence. His emotions caused him to often retreat to what he called the dark place. Additionally, he developed deep-seated trust issues in relationships with other men. The effects of the abuse also bled into McQueen's relationship with Janet. Positively, though, he saw her as a strong fellow survivor. He wanted to protect her and other women from harm. McQueen expressed this vision in the best way he knew how, in his clothing designs. He started thinking of the outfits as a kind of armor. In his teens, McQueen poured newfound enthusiasm into his art classes, the only subject where he got an A. His classmates always saw McQueen drawing dresses in a sketchbook. Art class became his second home. And 16-year-old McQueen continued to pursue the subject after graduation in 1985. At that point, he wanted to finally turn his drawings into real wearable dresses. Starting that September, he studied tailoring at the West Ham Technical College in Stratford, England. 
The classes helped McQueen make his first garments for his sister Janet. They were by no means perfect. At least one piece of clothing fell apart. Still, he strived for excellence. McQueen read books on textiles and experimented with photographing outfits. With hard work and persistence, his technique improved over time. Soon, his designs were featured in a school-sanctioned fashion show. His family didn't think much of it. Even Janet didn't attend. But his mother, Joyce, remained supportive, even suggesting he could find a potential job to pursue his passion. In 1986, they watched a TV news report about an apprentice shortage on Saville Row, London's tailoring district. Joyce told her son to go there and apply. Soon after, McQueen took London Transit to the headquarters of the prestigious tailor Anderson & Shepard on Savile Row. Following a short interview, the head salesman hired McQueen as an apprentice. His mentor was a master tailor of jackets. He soon drilled padding stitches into McQueen's head over and over. It was very tedious work, but it honed his sewing skills. While he enjoyed the work, McQueen felt discouraged by the homophobic remarks of his fellow apprentices. It was a dismissive and derisive culture that persisted in Savile Row shops. Additionally, the AIDS crisis in the 1980s stigmatized gay men. McQueen didn't know many other LGBTQ people and felt isolated. The anti-gay statements made him feel ashamed about his identity. So he kept to himself and floated from gig to gig, honing his craft with other tailors and designers. In January of 1988, he moved on to an apprenticeship at another well-regarded tailor, Geeves and Hawks. But yet again, a year later, he left due to the company's homophobic culture. Before long, McQueen had grown tired of short-term gig work. He was done being an apprentice. He was determined to become a designer in his own right, but he wasn't sure how. A former boss recommended returning to school to establish his credentials and network. So in October of 1990, McQueen started the Fashion Master's Program at Central St. Martin's, an art and fashion school. Fortunately, they considered his previous industry experience equivalent to a bachelor's degree. Central St. Martin's encouraged students to experiment and express themselves. Classmates and instructors recall that McQueen was insatiably curious, constantly asking questions. He relished in critiquing others' work and creating his own. For the first time, he felt like he belonged. McQueen drew on dark periods of history for inspiration. As an example, he was obsessed with serial killers— both real and fictional. He told his friends he was related to infamous London murderer Jack the Ripper, who slashed the throats of six sex workers in the 1880s. McQueen used those elements in his final St. Martin's project, a 10-piece clothing collection. Titled Jack the Ripper Stalks His Victims, McQueen called it Day into Evening Wear Inspired by 19th Century Streetwalkers. The clothes came with an unexpected personal touch. Inside the skirts and jackets, McQueen sewed his own pubic hair into hidden pockets. Pubic and other personal hairs also covered the collection's program booklet. Understandably, attendees were shocked. 
Later, McQueen explained a common Victorian-era practice inspired him. Back then, sex workers sold their own hair. Then, buyers gave those locks to their lovers as gifts. McQueen said, It was about me giving myself to the collection. It was the first time his offbeat artistry was misinterpreted, but certainly not the last. However, there was someone in the audience who understood and valued his show, influential British Vogue stylist Isabella Blow. She offered to buy his clothing collection. McQueen was skeptical about her intentions, but Blow persisted. She repeatedly phoned him and his mother Joyce until he relented. Finally, McQueen gave her a price, 5,000 pounds. Blow agreed, though it was a rich sum of money for her at the time. She arranged to pay him in installments. Little did McQueen know, this one sale would propel him into the worldwide spotlight. Next, Alexander McQueen risks failure for his biggest fashion opportunity yet. Hey, Parcasters! Looking for a more lighthearted listen? Then I've got the perfect podcast for you. The new Spotify original from Parcast called Incredible Feats. Hosted by comedian and podcaster Dan Cummins, Incredible Feats is a daily show spotlighting true accounts of mind-blowing physical strength, mental focus, and bizarre behavior. Join Dan every weekday as he goes behind the scenes and into the achievements of everyone from freedivers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Upon graduating from fashion school in 1992, 23-year-old Lee Alexander McQueen already had a buyer for his designs, British Vogue stylist Isabella Blow. She was entranced by his controversial collection and bought it for 5,000 pounds. But Blow wanted more. She made a deal with McQueen. If he made more clothes for her, he could live in one of her family's properties, a grand Victorian house. At this point, McQueen was desperate to move out of his mother's house, so he agreed. Soon, McQueen realized that he and Blow were kindred spirits. Despite her family's wealth, they shared a dark history filled with tragic deaths and suicide. Like McQueen, she used fashion as an armor and an escape from grim realities. As the two grew closer, Blow began to call McQueen by his middle name, Alexander. She thought the moniker sounded more grand for a designer, and McQueen obliged. Professionally, he started going by Alexander McQueen. The 23-year-old designed clothes for Blow's British Vogue photo shoots, including one featuring her and her husband. It was a huge opportunity for the novice designer. McQueen's outfits were a hit. The British Vogue spread was published in November of 1992, but despite McQueen's career milestone, he was still a broke 20-something who lived primarily on unemployment benefits. He kept designing clothes, but was desperate to keep his state payments his main source of income. Thus, it became an increasingly tricky situation when McQueen started to receive press attention. 
Soon, a Sky magazine journalist wanted to write an article about McQueen's clothing. He was excited about the publicity, but panicked about a photo of himself being published. He had always been self-conscious about his appearance, but he was also scared to lose his benefits. If the UK's Department of Social Security spotted McQueen's photo, they might think he had a steady income after all and cut him off. On the day of the photo shoot, McQueen and the photographer came up with an idea. McQueen wrapped his own face in gaffer's tape. It was an iconic photo that introduced the world to the designer, yet allowed him to hide his identity. McQueen continued to peel back his layers through his art, revealing a small collection titled Taxi Driver in early 1993 at the Ritz Hotel. In October of 1993, his next collection was ready. He and his friends hustled to secure the venue and lighting at a low cost, and the event turned out to be unlike anything the industry had ever seen. His nihilism collection embraced the era's heroin chic look. But the style wasn't just on trend. McQueen's vision was personal. He took inspiration from how his sister Janet survived domestic abuse. The pieces were splattered with red dye, mimicking the look of blood. During the show, the design shocked critics and photographers. On the catwalk, one model gave the audience the middle finger. McQueen's vision, though, was misinterpreted again. Journalists called it a horror show, while critics renewed accusations that McQueen was a misogynist. At the time, fashion shows weren't judged as works of art. They were simply showcases to sell clothes. McQueen wanted to change that. His shows were nearly theatrical. He saw them as a way to make dramatic statements about taboo issues. In this case, McQueen wanted to show women standing up to and surviving abuse, just like his sister. Despite the backlash, customers still wanted to buy his designs from the nihilism show, especially McQueen's signature pant, the Bumsters. The ultra-low-rise trousers were decidedly seductive, and the industry loved them. In fact, his design kicked off an industry-wide low-rise pants trend. McQueen was quickly becoming an icon, but he was still broke. So he had a new goal, create more commercial clothing, ready-to-wear outfits with impeccable tailoring. McQueen did just that in his Banshee collection in February of 1994. In Irish folklore, Banshees were weeping women who were able to predict death. McQueen saw this figure as being a strong woman in charge. And McQueen wanted to channel that mantra into shaping his public life. A few days before the show, he publicly came out to the Daily Telegraph. Predictably, this move made some waves. His mentor, Isabella Blow, admonished him for his decision. But McQueen thought she was being old-fashioned. He didn't want to hide who he was. He wanted to embrace every aspect of his identity. The fashion industry has long been home to many queer designers, and McQueen belonged to a thriving community of other gay men. In the summer of 1994, 25-year-old McQueen fell in love with 26-year-old Andrew Groves after they were introduced by a mutual friend. McQueen even hired him to work on his collections. 
Their relationship was tumultuous and dramatic. McQueen and Groves drank heavily, went clubbing often, and fought in public. Additionally, McQueen experimented with drugs. And though Andrew has said he never saw McQueen doing them, the designer's personality clearly shifted when he was drunk and high. After a few drinks, he'd reveal his darkest thoughts. He could get violent, and he would occasionally disclose thoughts of suicide. But this aspect of his personality remained largely private. Under the bright lights, the fashion world knew McQueen as a jovial rising star. McQueen and Groves broke up in 1996, but soon McQueen had a new right-hand man, or woman rather, stylist Katie England. She became his brand's creative director. Many people called her McQueen's second opinion. England worked on McQueen's subsequent shows, including the contentious Highland Rape in March of 1995. The ripped couture, suggestive nudity, and bruised models made it the designer's most controversial yet. The industry was shocked and accused McQueen of glorifying sexual assault on the catwalk. But he denied those claims. To McQueen, the rape was a reference to the failed Scottish rebellions against English rule in the 1700s. As a result, many Scots were evicted by the English. His statement as an artist was that England had raped Scotland. McQueen was also taking aim at another designer, Vivian Westwood. In one of her collections, she made a traditional tartan inspired by her third husband, a Scot. In her show, the British designer highly romanticized 18th century Scotland, which angered McQueen. To McQueen, the era was anything but romantic and he wanted to make that inescapably clear. Westwood took the subtext of the show personally and fought back, saying, his only usefulness is as a measure of zero talent. Which only set the European fashion industry more abuzz about the Highland rape. Soon, Hollywood embraced McQueen's clothes, too. Musicians David Bowie and Bjork wore McQueen designs on their album covers. And according to his daughter, Actor Dennis Hopper thought McQueen was a beyond-talented genius. McQueen was catching his rising star. High-end American stores Neiman Marcus and Bergdorf Goodman stocked his clothes. The prestigious UK boutique Browns bought his collection. And the British Fashion Awards named him Designer of the Year. By mid-1996, 28-year-old McQueen was one of the most in-demand designers in the world. Other labels took notice. In the fall of that year, luxury Paris brand Givenchy offered McQueen the plum job of creative director. As one of the top management roles in fashion, he'd have more influence than ever. And McQueen would make £450,000 a year, more money than he'd ever made. But he didn't jump to say yes. He'd have to move to Paris, which had a more elitist fashion industry than London. Also, McQueen was never a fan of the label. To a friend, he once called Givenchy dresses horrible. McQueen went back and forth for a few days before settling on a decision. In October of 1996, he finally put his reservations aside. He accepted the job and moved to Paris. The fashion world and the press were in shock. 
McQueen was only 28 years old and had only made eight collections. His shows were controversial, to say the least. Meanwhile, Givenchy was the elegant luxury brand from Paris. It seemed like a round peg was being forced into a square hole. The Guardian called McQueen a bull in a fashion shop. Many industry people thought it was all a publicity stunt. Everyone anticipated that McQueen would fail. Givenchy certainly had high expectations for McQueen. He was responsible for making four collections a year, which was no small task, on top of producing two shows annually for his own label. McQueen claimed he wasn't overwhelmed. He said, I may be quite mad on the public circuit, but I've got my head screwed on, tight with a wrench. For help, he hired his favorite collaborators, including stylist Katie England. McQueen even brought on his boyfriend at the time, Murray Arthur, to help with accounts. The one person missing from that roster was his former confidant, Isabella Blow. While McQueen was thankful for her support, he also wanted to distance himself from Blow. She was flighty, irresponsible, and prone to acting erratic. One time, she accompanied McQueen and his associate on the Eurostar train to Paris. While waiting on the platform, Blow befriended a young model and convinced her to swap clothes in public. Blow and the model thought it was hilarious, but McQueen was humiliated. With the amount of pressure he was under, he couldn't count her work to reflect positively on him at Givenchy. Blow was devastated by this denial. After all, she was the one who purchased the first collection he ever made. She saw herself as his mentor and number one fan. To her, McQueen had callously cast her aside. Still, Blow dutifully attended his first Givenchy show in January of 1997. And on that night, all eyes were on the designer. Even the models were nervous. The show's theme was the myth of Jason and the Argonauts. McQueen thought the quest for the Golden Fleece would fit nicely with Givenchy's own white and gold label. He even made a concentrated effort to tone down his own style. But of course, McQueen couldn't help but include his own small touches. One model wore a gold bodysuit and a white satin coat with an excessively long train. Another woman on the runway wore a wig made of hair shaped into horns. Other models bared their nipples, which were painted gold. Despite his best efforts, the show was in McQueen's signature style, not Givenchy's. The fashion world called the display too youthful and outrageous for the brand. Later, even McQueen admitted that the designs were bad. His first show for Givenchy had failed miserably. And it wouldn't be the only one. Next, Alexander McQueen bounces back, but his mental health takes a precarious turn. Now, back to the story. In 1997, 28-year-old Alexander McQueen's avant-garde designs propelled him to the top of haute couture fashion. His success led to an appointment as Givenchy's creative director, but his first runway show for the French label was a massive failure. Critics panned the collection as wildly mismatched for the brand. His subsequent Givenchy shows didn't do any better. 
For his number 13 collection, he recruited Paralympic athlete Amy Mullins for the show. Both of Mullins' legs were amputated shortly after birth due to a medical condition. And this inspired McQueen to push the envelope even further. He designed wooden legs for her that looked like high-heeled boots. McQueen wanted to empower Mullins, but many critics accused him of exploitation. Mullins herself denied the allegations. She said, This notion that I must have been manipulated by Alexander McQueen was so insulting. This fiasco was followed by yet another serious accusation. Plagiarism. Two college students alleged that McQueen stole two dress designs from them and used them for Givenchy. McQueen denied it. To escape from the mounting bad press, McQueen and his boyfriend Murray Arthur traveled back to their native Scotland. In the summer of 1997, they rented a cottage in a quiet village. Cooking and playing dominoes were a welcome change of pace for the hard-partying McQueen. But despite the peaceful vacation, McQueen would still have to return to the pressure of Givenchy and managing his own label. Back in Paris, McQueen and Arthur resumed their partying, but the relationship became volatile. The couple argued about everything. At one point, Arthur overdosed on pills, vodka, and gin. And while he survived, the relationship didn't. McQueen continued drinking and using cocaine while single. By 1998, he added promiscuous sex to the equation, too. His partying even spilled into his professional life. In his acceptance speech for an International Fashion Group Award, McQueen said, I'm so drunk I can barely even talk. Clearly, something was terribly wrong which was a jarring contrast since shows for McQueen's own label were receiving glowing reviews in the late 1990s. More Hollywood stars like Kate Winslet and Naomi Campbell wore his designs. By 2001, he was free from his Givenchy contract, which opened the door for Gucci's Tom Ford to buy a stake in McQueen's own company. Ford wanted to open boutiques for the brand all over the world. This was the new McQueen, a global, iconic brand. He had conquered England and Europe. It was time to take on the world. But despite his accolades and talent, he felt that one thing held him back. He was overweight. The fashion industry was filled with glamorous and extremely thin people. McQueen felt like a pariah, but he hoped that his talent would take the attention off of his appearance. They might like his designs, but fashion critics still ruthlessly mocked his appearance. One critic said McQueen's nickname, L'Enfant Terrible, should be Elephant Terrible. Another called him a walrus. Comments like these only made his body image issues worse. He realized that if he wanted to be taken seriously around the world, he needed to do something about it. McQueen knew he needed a more marketable look. He envisioned a suave, sophisticated appearance, like Calvin Klein or Ralph Lauren, and he was willing to take drastic measures like plastic surgery in order to obtain it. He'd risk his health to be the face of the brand. McQueen booked an expensive liposuction procedure before his 30th birthday. But just a year later, he gained weight again from his luxurious lifestyle. 
He'd recently married documentary filmmaker George Forsyth in Ibiza, Spain. The couple and their guests supposedly partied so hard that McQueen never wanted to return to Ibiza. However, the marriage ended a year later, and McQueen still wanted to lose weight. He hired a trainer, yet McQueen's cocaine addiction made it difficult to maintain a healthy routine. Because he was always on a high or coming down from one, the trainer refused to work with McQueen. So he decided on yet another severe measure in 2001, gastric band surgery. McQueen lost 28 pounds in the first three months. He was excited about his appearance and finally felt good about himself. But something was wrong. Soon, he was undeniably gaunt and pale. The cause was one of the most sobering health issues imaginable. In 2003, McQueen came out to friends as HIV positive. While he managed the virus with medication, McQueen still felt tainted. He referred to it as the bug and returned to recreational drugs for an escape from his grim reality. Friends estimated that McQueen spent 600 pounds a day on drugs, including cocaine. He also entered into yet another volatile romantic relationship, which was largely based on drugs. Still, the public was none the wiser. Professionally, McQueen was doing better than ever. His fashion shows received praise and his clothing sold well. He was heralded as an icon. Privately, though, McQueen felt like he was losing his closest allies. When stylist Katie England left his company to design Kate Moss's Topshop line, McQueen was devastated. Additionally, his mother Joyce was experiencing kidney failure and endured dialysis three times a week. His former mentor, Isabella Blow, had a mental breakdown as her marriage ended. Despite their sometimes rocky relationship, McQueen paid for her three-month treatment. He always felt like Blow was a kindred spirit. They had similar demons and insecurities. He felt her pain and darkness. So it pained McQueen to the point of despair to watch her spiral. Blow received psychiatric treatment several times over the years. By 2006, she had attempted suicide many times. Tragically, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer just a year later. He visited her one last time in April of 2007. During the visit, McQueen was high on cocaine the entire time. He convinced himself that they made peace with each other. From their conversation, McQueen thought Blow was doing okay. But Blow was reportedly heartbroken to see her successful friend, her one-time mentee, addicted to drugs. She could tell he was barely present during their visit. She felt like McQueen let her down. She hoped for more support from him as she battled her own demons. Shortly after, on May 7, 2007, 48-year-old Blow died by suicide. McQueen was devastated to hear the news. He felt depressed and saddened to lose his biggest supporter, the first person who believed in his work. Two days after her death, McQueen was so desperate that he believed he had to contact Blow in the afterlife. He visited various psychic mediums. He also requested a lock of her hair so he could make a ring. 
McQueen wept throughout Blow's entire funeral service. He blamed himself for her death and wished he'd done more to help her. He said her passing left a big void in his life. Blow's death cracked open the broader feeling of uneasiness in McQueen's own life. He started to see a psychiatrist who diagnosed him with mixed anxiety and depressive disorder. His many symptoms, including fatigue and irritability, were clear indicators. But after the diagnoses, McQueen didn't commit to maintaining treatment. He rarely kept his appointments. A year later, in 2008, McQueen seemed more optimistic. He talked about how Blow's death inspired him to live life to the fullest. But this all might have been a cover in order to protect his business. After all, his brand was booming. He opened a swanky new Los Angeles boutique on Melrose Avenue. And McQueen's deal with Gucci was still going strong. He celebrated his 39th birthday lavishly in New York City with his celebrity friends. But in private, McQueen was grappling with his demons more than ever. He became fascinated with the afterlife. He researched Marilyn Monroe's suicide at length. He read Buddhist texts about dying. And unexpectedly, he gave away a prized possession. McQueen gifted his on-and-off-again boyfriend, Archie Reed, several keepsakes, including a vintage Cartier watch studded with diamonds. When Reed asked why, McQueen said, that's to remember me by. He refused to clarify any further. As his fascination with death grew, McQueen's lifestyle became more self-destructive. He experimented with crystal meth and engaged in group sex parties. Those highs replaced the joy he once felt from his own success. Suddenly, his professional work made him feel empty and hollow. McQueen's once-celebrated Gucci deal made the designer feel trapped and unhappy. He expressed this displeasure in his February 2009 show, The Horn of Plenty. The collection attacked the fashion industry. The models' faces were covered in white makeup. The designs themselves were references to other designers. One dress in particular was made to resemble a raven, a symbol for death in many cultures. Sadly, death was at the forefront of McQueen's mind that year. In a conversation with a friend, he said he'd already designed his final collection. It was a shocking admission for such a successful designer, few would consider retiring at the height of their career. But McQueen's plans for the show went beyond shock value. They were incredibly troubling. McQueen said, In my last collection, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to end this. The 40-year-old designer wanted to stand in a glass box on the runway and shoot himself. McQueen had already drawn up a will and set up a charity to help the disenfranchised. A close friend immediately called McQueen's company offices to report his mental state, but a staff member insisted the designer was fine. But these were all placations. McQueen's family clearly saw that he was struggling. His sister Janet tried to talk to him about his drug use. But even during their conversation, he was high and acting erratically. He tried to overdose twice in the summer of 2009. 
McQueen didn't want his mother, Joyce, to know about his behavior. At that point, she was dying of kidney failure. He didn't want to worry her. He even avoided visiting her for periods of time, scared to face the severity of her condition. In immense pain at the hospital, Joyce died on February 2nd, 2010. McQueen was inconsolable when he received word. The thought of attending his mother's funeral was, by all accounts, too much for him. Nine days later, McQueen had dinner with friends. They were surprised at his appearance. He seemed more put together than usual. Overall, the night was pleasant. Afterward, he went home and grabbed a book, Wolfe von Linkiewicz's The Descent of Man. McQueen wrote on the back cover, Please look after my dogs. Sorry, I love you. Lee. P.S. Bury me at the church. Then, 40-year-old McQueen hung himself. His family was in shock, and so was the fashion world. Some critics blamed the industry. The pervasive question was why more wasn't done to help McQueen with his mental health. There had been such clear signs something was wrong. But as his own psychiatrist, Dr. Stephen Pereira, said, it wasn't so simple. McQueen was very secretive and had trust issues. He felt disappointed by many of his friends. But he swung between being overcome by the sadness from these issues and pretending all was well. However, his mother's death may have been the final straw. After she passed, he may have felt like he had little to live for. McQueen left behind a fashion empire, a legacy of groundbreaking clothes and dramatic shows. Yet the immense pressure to innovate despite the success and wealth it brought ultimately sowed deeper issues. Money and fame didn't make him happy, even if the world was wearing his clothes. McQueen wasn't the only modern fashion designer to battle a combination of internal demons, pressure, and scrutiny. Eight years later, in 2018, Kate Spade's suicide shocked the industry. Knowing her brand's happy-go-lucky reputation, it was a sobering moment. Like McQueen, she too felt pressured to hide her struggles in order to protect her business. These stories remind us of one striking reality. The glossiness of what we see on runways, in magazines, or social media is rarely an indication of quality of life. For Alexander McQueen, despite the wealth and fame associated with fashion, the clothes he loved so much could not protect him from the harsh realities of the industry. Even fashionable armor has its holes. Thanks for listening. For more information on Alexander McQueen, amongst the many sources we used, we found Alexander McQueen, Blood Beneath the Skin by Andrew Wilson, extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll be back with the dark side of Fashion Nova and fast fashion retailers. We'll explore why having the hottest trends right at your fingertips also means stepping into a revolving door of consequences. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, 
But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Listeners, you don't want to miss Incredible Feats, the all-new Spotify original from Parcast. Host Dan Cummins free-falls straight into the weirdest, wildest achievements of all time. New episodes air every weekday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.